Well, please turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 14. We'll continue to look into the story of Jesus. And as we look into the story of Jesus here in Mark chapter 14, what is going to be emphasized by the Holy Spirit speaking through Mark's pen is that Jesus was in full control of all of the events with full knowledge of everything that was going to happen and that it was all according to God's plan written in Scripture as Jesus prepared himself and his disciples for his betrayal his arrest, his trial, his crucifixion, and his resurrection. Mark chapter 14 is really a focus on the foreknowledge, the strength, the sovereignty of the Lord Jesus Christ in contrast to the ignorance and the weakness of those who were around him. So the story of Jesus here is the story of our heroic Savior. We're going to start there in Mark chapter 14 and verse 12. As I mentioned earlier, Last week, we looked into the first 11 verses where we have in focus the anointing of Jesus at Bethany. Surrounding that, we have the hatred and the betrayal, but there right in the middle is the anointing of Jesus' head by Mary, the sister of Lazarus, preparing Christ for his burial in an act of genuine love and worship. Well, we will continue looking into this last night of the Lord Jesus Christ with his disciples in Mark chapter 14, there in verse 12. Our outline for today is going to be in four parts, focusing on the Passover and the Lord's Supper, there alternately in verses 12 through 16 and verses 22 to 25. And then in between, in between those, you have Judas's treachery contrasted with Peter's denial or compared with Peter's denial. There's a comparison and contrast there. So you see that our two parts of our outline kind of go together. Passover with Lord's Supper and Judas and Peter. In the midst of it all, we see the Lord Jesus Christ standing tall and having complete control in the situation. We'll start by reading verses 12 through 16. Follow along in your Bibles as I read it out loud for us. And on the first day of unleavened bread... When they sacrificed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, Where will you have us go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the city, and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him. And wherever he enters, say to the master of the house, The teacher says, Where is my guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room, furnished and ready. There prepare for us. And the disciples set out and went to the city and found it just as he had told them. And they prepared the Passover. So the opening section here, the opening paragraph, a focus on the divine foreknowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ in the preparation of the Passover. Curious that we have so much information about this. Most likely because Peter is one of these two disciples who Jesus sent on this mission. We find his name mentioned in this account in Luke. The parallel account in Luke chapter 22, we're told that it was Peter and John who were the two disciples who asked Jesus, where do you want us to go and prepare for the Passover? Now, Jesus' instructions here to Peter and John are very specific. And in fact, they remind us of an incident just previous in the gospel record, if you turn back to Mark chapter 11, 
There we have another account of the Lord Jesus Christ having some divine foreknowledge about certain events that were going to be in preparation for an important action, an important movement of Christ in this final week that we have in Jerusalem. There at the beginning of chapter 11, it says, When they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethphage and Bethany, at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples. All right, so we've got Jesus at Bethany. We left off in Mark 14 with Jesus at Bethany. Now Christ is sending two of his disciples into the city, actually into the village this time, rather than into the city. But go into the village in front of you, he says in verse 2, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it, and he will send it back here immediately. And verse 4, very much like what we have in chapter 14, they go away, they found it just as Jesus said. There's the colt, they untied it, someone said, what are you doing untying the colt? They say exactly what Jesus told them to say, and everything works out great. So, in a similar way, in chapter 14, when it comes to the preparation for this final Passover meal that Jesus would enjoy, he sends two of his disciples from Bethany to find a specific circumstance. In this case, it was the donkey. Now in chapter 14, it's a man who is carrying a jar, a jug of water. Now, that would be something that would be noticeable because normally it was women who carried jars of water. If a man was going to carry water, he usually had bags that he carried water in. Cultures have their own traditions. But here you've got a man that's carrying a ceramic jar of water, and so this would have been unusual. And the disciples could have taken note. Ah, that's what Jesus was telling us about. There's that man with that jar of water. And they follow him. Who knows how far? A couple of blocks. He enters into a house. They go into the house and they say to the master of the house, whether he's the steward or the owner, not exactly clear, where's the room where the teacher can have the Passover meal? Now, it's most likely that this is a supernatural pre-planning on the Lord's behalf. Some people read it and say, well, maybe he arranged for this secret meeting and he talked with the owner of the house ahead of time and he said, well, send out the guy with the water jug and he'll meet the disciples at this time and, and all that. And it's possible to read it that way. But when you are reading it in the context of Mark chapter 11 and then you're reading it in the context of Scripture in general, I think that God wants us to understand that, that this is a supernatural meeting that God is arranging and it's not just behind-the-scenes arrangements. And this is further confirmed by the similarity of this passage to what we see in the Old Testament in 1 Samuel chapter 10. Turn back with me to 1 Samuel chapter 10. Scripture interprets Scripture, and God likes to repeat things. He'll set up one thing, and then he'll have something that is like it happen later to make connections. And here we have, again, an emphasis on the prophetic ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ that is similar to what we see in the life of a great prophet in the Old Testament, namely Samuel. So when Samuel goes to anoint Saul as the first king over the entire nation of Israel, it says there in chapter 10, verse 1 of 1 Samuel, that he took a flask of oil and poured it on Saul's head and kissed him and said, Has not the Lord anointed you to be prince over his people Israel? And you shall reign over the people of the Lord, and you will save them from the hand of their surrounding enemies. And this shall be the sign to you. 
that the Lord has anointed you to be the prince over his heritage. When you depart from me today, you will meet two men by Rachel's tomb in the territory of Benjamin at Zelzah, and they will say to you, the donkeys that you went to seek are found. And now your father has stopped worrying about the donkeys and is anxious about you, saying, what shall I do about my son? Then you shall go on from there farther and come to the oak of Tabor. Three men going up to God at Bethel will meet you there, one carrying three young goats, another carrying three loaves of bread, and another carrying a skin of wine. And they will greet you and give you two loaves of bread, which you shall accept from their hand. After that, you shall come to Gibeah Elohim, where there is a garrison of the Philistines. And there, as soon as you come to the city, you will meet a group of prophets coming down from the high place with harp, tambourine, flute, and lyre before them, prophesying. Then the Spirit of the Lord will rush upon you, and you will prophesy with them and be turned into another man. Now when these signs meet you, do what your hands finds to do, for God is with you. Then go down with me to Gilgal, and behold, I am coming down to you to offer burnt offerings and to sacrifice peace offerings. Seven days you shall wait until I come to you and show you what you shall do. And Saul goes, and it all happens exactly the way that the prophet said it was going to happen, showing a sign that this is God's will, this is God's plan. And so I think in a similar way, in Mark chapter 14, Jesus, acting like the prophet, is sending the men into the city, and it all happens exactly as Jesus said, because this is God's providence, this is God's sign to the disciples that Jesus is, in fact, the Christ, and that everything that is happening is according to God's plan, nothing is out of control. When Christ is arrested and killed, and they flee, and they start to panic, they should remember God's in control. Jesus told us exactly what was going to happen. And so we don't have to stop believing in Christ. We don't have to stop believing in God. We don't have to lose our faith, but instead recognize this is all according to the predetermined plan of God. I think that's the idea here that Mark is conveying in these specific instructions to the disciples as to where they are to prepare this important Passover meal for the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, some commentators will also see in these verses a secrecy on behalf of Christ that he's just telling two of his disciples where the Passover meal is going to be and that he's keeping it secret from his other disciples because he knows that Judas is going to betray him, that Judas is seeking an opportunity to betray him and that Christ being in control doesn't want to be arrested at the Passover meal. It's a very important Passover meal. It's where he's going to be instituting the Lord's Supper. And if Judas knew where they were going to be having their Passover meal, then maybe Satan would lead Judas to bring them to arrest him at the Passover meal, and then he wouldn't have time to institute the Lord's Supper. And he wouldn't have time to give them their final instructions as they then crossed back over to the Mount of Olives and Jesus was praying in the garden. Jesus praying in the garden, that's where he chose to be arrested. That's where he let Judas know, I'm going to be here, this is what I always do, this is my habit. And so Judas knew where to lead to his arrest. That's very possible. That could also be part of what's going on here in Mark chapter 14 about how only a couple of the disciples know the location where this last Passover is going to be eaten. Very interesting. Now, with all that in mind, we're ready to move on to verses 17 through 21 where we see Judas's treachery. Let's go ahead and read then Mark chapter 14, picking it up in verse 17. And when it was evening, he came with the twelve. And as they were reclining at table and eating, Jesus said, Truly I say to you, 
one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They began to be sorrowful and to say to him one after another, Is it I? He said to them, It is one of the twelve, one who is dipping bread into the dish with me. For the Son of Man goes, as it is written of him. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. So in the first paragraph that we looked at here today, we see Jesus' divine foreknowledge about a man carrying a jug of water and where there would be a room that would be available for Jesus and his disciples in the busiest time of year when everything is packed in Jerusalem and the population of Jerusalem is swelled to about five times of its normal size, and yet there's this large upper room that's completely prepared, and God says, here's my providence. So Jesus has all that under control. And now when he's eating the Passover meals with his disciples, he tells them, truly, one of you will betray me. Now, several things to note here. One, this takes away from the joy of the Passover meal. Normally, the Passover meal is a time of of great fellowship. It's time to be together with your family. We read earlier from Exodus chapter 12 how most households were pretty large back in those days. They had a lot of kids. And so you'd have like one lamb for a household. Normally, a, a lamb would feed about 10 people. So you think of being together with your whole family, enjoying this feast that's celebrating the deliverance of Israel, your liberation, your freedom. It's kind of like our 4th of July type of celebration. That's the, the atmosphere of the Jewish cedar meal, the Passover meal. And yet, here, at this most important meal of the year, where you're supposed to be surrounded by your loved ones and your family and enjoying and celebrating God's victory, there's a traitor in the midst. This breaks the atmosphere. Okay? This brings everything down. It grieves them that Jesus interrupts the meal and says, truly, I say to you. Whenever Jesus says, truly, I say to you, he's, he's really getting attention. He's, he's saying something that would be hard for us to believe if Jesus wasn't the one saying it. And these disciples, they've known each other for years. They've worked together. They've traveled together. They've eaten together. And when Jesus says, one of you who is eating with me is going to betray me, that is a grievous thing in the Jewish culture. To share a table with someone, to share a table fellowship, and to betray the people that you eat with is a great sin, a grievous evil in the Jewish context, even as it would be in ours, but even more so in their culture. You don't wrong your host. You don't wrong the people that you eat with. This is your family. And so he says, one of you is going to betray me, one who is eating with me, and that's why they began to be sorrowful. And when it says... In verse 19, they began to say to him one after another, is it I? The way that's stated in the Greek gives the idea that they're all saying, it can't possibly be me. It's not me. It can't be me. That's kind of the idea that's coming across here. And so they're not saying, well, could it be me? They're saying, no, no, it can't be me. It's got to be somebody else. They're all saying that. Now, how specific is Jesus' identification of his betrayer at the Lord's table? That's a question that arises because Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John all record this conversation on that last night. And some of them seem to indicate that Jesus is more specific about identifying his betrayer, and some seem to say that he's more general and less specific. Mark's account is more general. If you just read Mark's account, 
you get the idea that he was narrowing it down, but he didn't necessarily identify specifically Judas as the one who was going to betray him. When he starts off and says, one of you will betray me, there might be more than just the 12 disciples and Jesus there. There might be some of the women who are traveling with Jesus. There might be other disciples that want to have this Passover meal with Jesus. John Mark might be there. And so it might be more than just the 12. When he says, one of you, he could be talking about the whole room. Now, we think it's just Jesus and the Twelve because that's the paintings that we've seen. But, you know, the painting isn't necessarily historical because in the painting they're sitting on chairs and they didn't sit on chairs back then. They, they reclined on the floor. But all that aside, then he narrows it down a little bit more in verse 20 when he says it's one of the Twelve. So they're astonished, like, can't be me, can't be me. And he says, it is one of the Twelve. And then he says, one who is dipping bread into the dish with me. And most likely, from what I understand from the way that they had their meals, that narrows it down even further. You've got a big table with Jesus and the twelve, maybe other people too. The one who's dipping bread with Jesus is sitting very close to Jesus. So he's not one of the disciples on the far end of the table that they would each have their own little thing of oil or bitter herbs or whatever it was they were dipping their bread into. And so when he says, one who is dipping bread with me, then he's saying it's one of these ones who are close to me. Now, when you read John's account, John seems to ask more specifically, who exactly are you talking about? And John indicates that Jesus pointed out Judas as the one who was going to betray him. We don't have that here in Mark's account because Peter may not have noticed that John had specifically asked this and that Jesus had let John know who it was that was betraying. Also, when you look at Matthew's account, Judas says, is it I, Rabbi? And Jesus says to Judas, according to Matthew chapter 26, verse 25, you have said so. Now, you have said so isn't, in their language, it's not a definite identification, but it, it is kind of pointing in that direction. It's a somewhat of an affirmation of what the person has just said. And so Jesus does, in some manner, in some way, single out Judas as the one, but in a way that is very discreet, whether it's just to John or just to Judas, that he knows exactly who his betrayer is. But he doesn't let everyone in the group know that it's Judas. That's what you get when you read all four of these accounts together on this particular note of interest. Now, where was it written in verse 21 when Jesus says, the Son of Man goes as it is written of him? Where is it written that the Son of Man is going to go? And when Jesus says go, he's talking about he's going to be betrayed, he's going to be crucified, he's going to be killed, buried, all the things that are going to happen to him on Good Friday, as we call it. Where is that written in the Old Testament? And so I'd say some of the passages that Jesus has in mind here when he talks about the Son of Man, that's himself, going as it has been written, would be Psalm 22 and Isaiah 53. Two of the most important passages in the Old Testament about the sufferings of the Messiah are Isaiah 53 and Psalm 22. But that's not all that is probably in his mind when he's thinking about this. There's also specific passages about the betrayal of the Christ. And the one that he has in mind most is Psalm 41, verse 9. Turn back with me to the book of Psalms. Psalm 41 in your Bibles. If you're going to understand the New Testament, you've got to read your Old Testament. 
Whatever was written in former times was written for our instruction. And so we go back to the Psalms to be able to understand the person and work of Jesus Christ because the book of Psalms is the book of David. And the book of David is about the experiences of God's Christ, God's anointed. Jesus is the son of David. And so as we showed earlier, God likes to set things up and to repeat things. So as Samuel prophesied about what was going to happen to Saul, so Jesus prophesied about what the disciples would find when they went into Jerusalem. And as David suffered betrayal from those who were his close friends, so the son of David was also going to suffer betrayal from his close friends. We see that here in Psalm 41. The title of the psalm says it's a psalm of David. And it goes on and expresses the sufferings of David. And in verse 9, it focuses on the close friend. Even my close friend in whom I trusted. Notice what it says. Who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. Now, lifting the heel against someone is, again, a Semitic turn of phrase that indicates despising, turning against, betraying, hating. So that's what is going on here. And Jesus says, one of you who is dipping bread with me, who's eating bread at my table here, my close friend in whom I trusted is going to betray me, going to lift his heel against me. And in fact, John, in writing about this in John 13, 18, specifically quotes this verse as being fulfilled in Judas betraying Jesus in relationship to them eating together at the Last Supper. Now, there's other psalms also that really focus on the betrayal of David and therefore, by extension, by typology, David's son. Turn with me to Psalm 55. Psalm 55, verses 12 and 13. The Son of Man is going to go just as it was written about him. There's direct prophecies like Isaiah 53, and then there's more indirect prophecy, typological prophecy, where what happened to David is a parallel of what happens to Jesus. And I think that's what we have here in Psalm 55, verses 12 and 13, where David, again, writes about his experiences, and he says in verse 12, It is not an enemy who taunts me, then I could bear it. It is not an adversary who deals insolent with me, then I could hide from him. But it is you. A man, my equal, my companion, my familiar friend. We used to take sweet counsel together within God's house. We walked in the throng. So there you see the betrayal of the Son of Man in Psalm 55. And you come down to verse 20 of the same chapter, and there it says, My companion stretched out his hand against his friends. He violated his covenant, this covenant of friendship. His speech was smooth as butter, yet war was in his heart. His words were softer than oil, yet they were drawn swords. So Psalm 55, Psalm 41, important passages there that are prophecies, typological prophecies of the experience of Jesus here in Mark chapter 14. So let's go back to Mark chapter 14. That's not the only significant thing in verse 21 that the Son of Man is going as it is written him. But notice the second half of this verse. Key verse here in the Gospels, a key verse in the Bible. John MacArthur, as I was listening to his sermon this week on this passage, he said verse 21 was the strongest statement that he knew of in all the Scripture on human responsibility. 
So we've been emphasizing divine foreknowledge, divine providence, the fulfillment of prophecy. And you might think, well, if God is working all things out after His will, and it's God's design that Jesus is betrayed, and that through that betrayal, He offers Himself as a sacrifice for sins, and it's all going to work out in the end, because now we have eternal salvation, and Christ rises from the dead, and and it's all good. Well, then how can God hold anybody accountable for their sin? Maybe Judas is doing the right thing in betraying Jesus because good comes from it. God brings good out of it. And so verse 21 guards us from making that kind of conclusion based upon God's providence and God bringing good out of evil. Just the fact that God brings good out of evil doesn't mean that evil isn't evil. And it doesn't mean that God's not going to punish evil. This act by Judas, while it leads to our eternal salvation is a despicable, horrible act of treachery. And he's going to be judged for it. Notice what he says. The Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. And he adds to it, it would have been better for that man if he had not been born. A very sobering statement. Let's go on then to verses 22 to 25, where we see the Lord's Supper. They've prepared the Passover. Jesus has wrecked the mood of the Passover by announcing the betrayal. But Jesus is going to do something remarkable next. And from what we read from the four Gospels, it appears that at this point Judas leaves. And now the Lord is able to enjoy the rest of the supper without having to have his betrayer sitting next to him. And this is then when he institutes the most beloved act of the church, our remembrance of him in the cup and in the bread. So let's read about that in verses 22 to 25. As they were eating, he took bread, and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to them and said, Take, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank of it. And he said to them, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. So a lot here. Uh, It's a wonderful passage for us to be able to consider today, as today is our Sunday in the month when we will be participating in the Lord's table momentarily. Let's take a look at some of the truth that we can draw out from the way that Mark records the institution of, of the Lord's Supper. He says that it was as they were eating. Now, we have historical records from the Mishnah, other ancient Jewish writings, about what the Jewish Passover meal looked like at this time. And so we can kind of get an idea of where in the meal this was happening, that they had several cups of wine that they would drink during the night, that they had particular sections where there would be question and answer and giving of thanks. And so You do the historical reading, you can get a pretty good idea of what's going on than just Mark's brief summary of it. And that's a fun study. Maybe someday we'll do that more. We'll have a a Passover meal here at the church and we'll walk through step by step the way the Jews had the Passover and then we'll talk about what Jesus did differently that night where you can really get a good idea of that. But for now, since we have several paragraphs here to cover, let's just take a few highlights from what we have here. And you see that Jesus blessed the bread. 
and that he gave thanks for the cup. And this sets the pattern, the example that the Jewish people had because of their love for God and their dependence upon him of, of giving thanks and blessing. And so that's a, an important part of our meals together, that we give thanks and we bless the food that God has given to us as well. But here, Jesus introduces a, a new concept, a new idea into the Passover meal where now it's not about what happened way back then, but now he is instituting a remembrance of what is about to happen in his time. That his body has been given for them and his blood is going to be poured out in instituting the new covenant. Notice that in verse 24. He said, This is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many. So I imagine that the Passover meal up to this point was pretty standard. That you know, maybe Jesus had his own way of conducting the feast. He was the head of this household. He was the one that was directing the events of the evening. And so he may not have done everything exactly the way that the Mishnah records the normal Jewish family doing it. But I'm sure that Jesus, when his disciples, had a pretty good idea of the way things normally went and the way that Jesus normally conducted a Passover. This is not their first Passover meal together. And yet here... He does something different, and it's different enough that it gets their attention and that Mark writes it down. Now, how much they knew at the time of the significance of what Jesus was saying and doing, and how much of it dawned upon them later that, it, oh, this is actually one of the most important elements now of our corporate worship in this new thing that God is making in the church. I think it probably took some time for them to put the pieces together. But Jesus lays out some of the pieces here that is going to be the foundation for what is then revealed in the church as Christ is ascended and the Holy Spirit leads the church into all the truth about this Lord's table, the Lord's Supper. So when he says, back to the verse 24, the blood of the covenant, my blood of the covenant, this brings to the remembrance of the Jew who knows his Old Testament well, or the proselyte who knows his Old Testament well. Exodus chapter 24, verse 8. Let me read for you Exodus 24, 8. It said this, Moses took the blood and he threw it on the people and said, Behold, the blood of the covenant which the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. Exodus chapter 24, where are we in the story of Israel? They've come out of Egypt. They're no longer slaves to Pharaoh. They've been led by God through the wilderness as he's provided for them. And they've come to Mount Sinai to enter into covenant with the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob according to the promises that God had made to the patriarchs. And at Mount Sinai, God enters into the Mosaic covenant, the Sinaitic covenant with the people of Israel. And as they are ratifying, as they are formalizing that covenant, there is blood that is spilled, there is a sacrifice that is made that Moses sprinkles on the people in order to make them a part of this covenant. And so Jesus says, this cup represents my blood and that by drinking it, you are identified with the covenant, the new covenant that God had promised to the people. He doesn't call it the new covenant, he calls it my blood of the covenant, but the disciples come to understand that what he's talking about is the New Covenant. Turn with me once again to the Old Testament, the book of Jeremiah. Jeremiah chapter 31. 
Jeremiah chapter 31, verses 31 through 34, are some of the most important verses in the Old Testament. You're going to want to highlight them or whatever you do to mark something off as important in your Bible. Jeremiah 31, verses 31 through 34, let me just read them for you, where God says through the prophet, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, the covenant at Mount Sinai, the Mosaic covenant, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. The forgiveness of sins, the knowledge of God, the new covenant that God is going to make with the people of Israel, Jesus is basically saying, That's what I am dying to institute. My blood, which is about to be poured out, my life is about to be given to institute the new covenant that was promised by God through the prophets, not just Jeremiah, but other prophets as well. So, key verse there to keep in mind as you think about the blood of the covenant. Exodus 24, verse 8, and Jeremiah 31, verses 31 to 34. Now, the last thing I want to highlight here in this paragraph is verse 25. When you come down and you see in Mark 14, 25, Jesus says, truly, that's again another a truly statement, truly I say to you, I will not drink again. So this is startling, this is remarkable. Jesus is telling them, this is the last time I'm going to sit down and eat and drink with you. I'm going to be taken away. And that I won't come back again until the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. And so here, notice on the table, we've got the bread, we've got the cup. And when we participate in the Lord's table later today, in just a few minutes, we will be remembering Christ. Do this in remembrance of me, that he's not here with us. Think about Peter, James, and John, the other disciples, John Mark, living 10 years, 20 years after Jesus Christ had been taken up into heaven, and they sit down with the church, and they observe the Lord's table. And they're remembering. Remember when Christ was here with us? Remember when we had our Passover meals with him? Remember when we walked the streets with him and and he taught us and we had fellowship with him face to face? Remember that? Those were good days. Let's look forward to when we get to have those days once again. And that's what we're doing. Now, we didn't sit down at the table with Jesus 2,000 years ago like Peter, James, and John. But we're looking forward to the coming of God's kingdom and eating and drinking with the Lord Jesus Christ and his kingdom just as much as Peter, James, and John would have been doing in their lifetime after Christ was ascended. So that's what the church is. That's what the church does. That's what this table is all about. Jesus said, I'll never leave you. I'll never forsake you. I'm going to send my spirit I'll be there with you in spirit. And when we eat the bread and drink the cup, the Spirit of God is with us. 
the Spirit of Jesus Christ is within us, and we are having fellowship, we are having communion with God at this table. But not the fullness of communion, not the face-to-face communion that we look forward to, that is ahead of us. So this doesn't just look back, but it also looks forward. Jesus wasn't just talking about the blood of the new covenant, he was also talking about the coming of the kingdom of God. He says, yeah, I'm going to be gone. I won't be there with you to eat and drink at your table. When you have your church potluck, Jesus is not going to be there in the flesh. He'll be there in the spirit, but we have to wait for the coming of God's kingdom to be able to eat and drink with Jesus Christ face to face once again. And that's really what the kingdom of God is. It's, it's, a, it's a wedding feast. It's a celebration of the king being wedded to his kingdom. And we are that kingdom. Pretty awesome when you think about what is portrayed and what is pictured and what Christ in his wisdom and God in his goodness has ordained for us in partaking of the bread and the cup as often as we do it. Well, we've got one paragraph left. Let's see if we can get verses 27 through 31 squeezed in here also so that we have Peter's denial and Judas's treachery to compare and contrast with one another. Pick it up there in verse 26. Verse 26 is a, a transition. You could put it with the previous paragraph or the next paragraph. When they'd sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. And Jesus said to them, You will all fall away, for it is written. Here again, what is written, what is predestined, what is according to God's plan. I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. So he's, yeah, he's talking about the death, but he's also talking about the resurrection. He talks about his absence, but he also talks about his coming. We have the full picture of God's plan for the future being portrayed here in God's sovereignty before Jesus Christ suffers, before he dies. I will go before you to Galilee, he says. But Peter said to him, even though they all fall away, I will not. I am the strongest. I love you the best. I'll never fail you. And it's kind of the idea that Peter's saying there. You wonder if the other disciples looked at him kind of sideways there. Why are you so much better than the rest of us? Even though they all fall away, I will not, Peter says. And Jesus said to him, truly, this is like his third or fourth truly statement, truly I tell you, this time just for Peter, this very night, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But he said emphatically, if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said the same. Notice that in Peter's vehemence to talk about how much he loves Jesus, he's accusing Jesus of being a false prophet. Jesus just prophesied with solemnity that Peter is going to deny him. And he says, nope, you're wrong. I'm right. And a little bit later, Peter is going to deny Christ with the same vehemence with which he has just promised not to. Come down to verses 68 to 72. There in verse 68, they're telling him, you were with Jesus the Nazarene, right? But he denied it, saying, I neither know nor understand what you mean. And he went out into the gateway, and the rooster crowed. And the servant girl saw him and began to say to the bystanders, This man is one of them. But again he denied it. And after a little while, the bystanders again said to Peter, Certainly you are one of them, for you are a Galilean. But he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know this man of whom you speak. And immediately the rooster crowed a second time, and Peter remembered how Jesus said to him, Before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. That's what we learned from from Peter. 
Peter is a friend of Jesus. He's not going to betray Jesus with treachery, but he is going to abandon Jesus because of his weakness. Don't overemphasize, don't overestimate your strength. Your strength will fail you. And that's why in between Jesus foretelling Peter's denial and Peter denying Christ and fulfilling that prophecy, we have Jesus' prayer in Gethsemane where Jesus will tell the disciples, including Peter, pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Remember that about yourself. If you find yourself running short on strength to serve the Lord, you find yourself exhausted and tired and stumbling, well, have I prayed? Am I praying? Am I devoting myself to prayer? When was the last time I prayed for an hour? Uh, I can watch a movie for an hour. I can watch a television show for half an hour. Can I pray for half an hour? And if you're not praying, don't be surprised if your flesh is weak. Your spirit is willing. You want to do the right thing. You love Christ, but you don't have power without prayer. And we'll talk more about that next week. So Peter didn't mean to betray Jesus, but his weakness led to his denial, and it was bitter for him. There's a lot in this passage. I've just touched on a few things. But I think the main emphasis that we started off with that I want to close with once again is that Jesus is in control. God knows. God has it all planned out. When things go bad and people are doing bad, don't fret. Don't lose faith in God. Don't allow the wickedness and the evil that surrounds you to make you lose sight of the fact that God is able to bring good out of evil. And that Romans 8.28 is still true. God causes all things to work together for good for those who are called according to purpose. So lift up your head and trust in God. As Dan started the service off today, let not your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me.